What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. So I assume that you guys saw the news about Trump having a sneaker now, that he's like selling a signature sneaker. It's very gold. It has an American flag on the side. Um, I'm curious, if Biden were to have a signature shoe, what what shoe do you think that would be? Oh, boy, it's got to be the super old style <laughs> new gray New Balance shoes that my dad wore for had to be 30 years, and he was so loyal to this brand, and he didn't care that they looked like old man sneakers. Oh, my gosh. That's so harsh. I was thinking, like, a loafer, a boat shoe. Although, he, I don't know, he kind of has random cool impulses with his cars, his fast cars. Mm-hmm. So maybe, like, I don't know, a throwback, like a pump high top. Oh, from yeah. The 90s. Did those actually work? Did that actually do anything for you? I don't even know. I was never, my mom would never let me buy them. Um, (laughs) Never found out. (laughs) No. Before we go any further, I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 23rd, and this is The Campaign Moment, a new segment that we're doing every Friday here on Post Reports to talk about all things politics. Every week, you will be hearing from my colleague, senior political reporter Aaron Blake. Aaron, hello. Thank you for being here. Hey, Martine. And today we also have senior national political correspondent Ashley Parker. Hi, thanks so much for having me, you guys. So part of the idea of the campaign moment is for us to talk about like a moment that has happened this week that feels like it is embodying what is happening in politics and in the presidential race right now. I'm curious for both of you, what was your campaign moment of this week? A couple things I'm thinking about are the Trump VP process. He was asked about this during a Fox News town hall, and he kind of gave a non-answer, but suggested that he was thinking about a lot of people. And then the other thing is that uh, we're getting some kind of rubber-to-the-road moments in the Biden impeachment stuff with his brother testifying, Hunter Biden testifying next week, some big news, which I'm sure we'll get to concerning an informant in that process. And, And so those are the things I'm thinking about. And we'll get to a lot of that this week. Ashley, what about you? You mentioned the Trump sneaker, and I've just been thinking about I covered Trump starting basically the day poor, sad, sweet Jeb Bush dropped out in February of 2015. And I covered him ever since his campaign, his White House, his post-presidency. And this week I was kind of struck by just the way in which it feels like we're being thrown back into like the Trump reality show, both from the trivial like that sneaker. And I saw some images out of CPAC this week. It looks like there is a pinball game of January 6th, like sort of a pro insurrectionist. Wait, like pinball, like an arcade game? Yes, like a huge arcade pinball machine where Does it, like the, it's inside the the Capitol. Is that the idea? I mean, I, I only looked at like the, the photos of the top. I would assume if it's anything like the actual insurrection, it starts outside of the Capitol, right? <laughs> With people then, try, I don't know, trying to get the ball into the speaker's office. I don't quite know. Um, oh, but there's God. that sort of weird Trump stuff. And then there's also the more 
problematic and alarming and troubling stuff like his recent comments about NATO and telling Russia, you know, invade whoever the hell you want and kind of likening himself to Navalny as a fellow political martyr. So I'm I'm just re-remembering what it is like to so fully exist in Donald Trump's universe. And what do you think that means about like where we're at in this campaign? The fact that it does feel so like 2019. For what it's worth, I think the Biden campaign is getting excited because their whole theory of the case is that people need to remember what Trump is like and what it's like to live in Trump's world. And they think there's sort of this amnesia, right? Like the country has kind of forgotten and moved on. And once they are plunged back in from everything from like the sneakers to the embracing of Putin and Russia and alienating of our NATO allies, voters will remember why they didn't choose him in 2020. Well, so I said 2019 and clearly it's 2015 or 24. I'm like, what is time anymore? Well, it was also it was also 2019, yeah. right? Like <laughs> it was 2015, 2016, 2019, 2020. <laughs> it's been a lot. Yeah, yeah. We are just living inside the Trump reality show. So given the fact that we are right now 24 hours away from the Republican primary in South Carolina, I do think it's worth just starting there, talking about what it will mean when Nikki Haley it seems like is going to lose. But the question is by how much and how she responds to it after. This was a week in which Haley was almost like telegraphing that loss, right? Like she gave this big speech where she talks about how she is not a quitter. She's going to be staying in the race until Super Tuesday. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. She also was very defiant and kind of upping the attacks on uh, former President Trump. He's gotten more unstable and unhinged. He's so obsessed with his own demons from the past, he can't focus on delivering the future Americans deserve. So hearing that speech, what is going on here? What is going through Nikki Haley's head? Well, I think that there are a few things to note here. One is that no candidate is going to say when they're asked, yeah, I might drop out in a couple days. That's just not something you do as long as you think you still have a shot in the campaign. Yeah, everyone is always staying in right. until suddenly they're not, right? right? The, the moment you, like, project any doubt whatsoever that you're pressing forward is the moment that donors are like, I don't know if I'm going to give you any more money. So there's that. But I think that the speech that she gave on Tuesday saying that she's going to stay in the race, was it was not only defiant, it was also detailed. It was laying out a lot of reasons why she wants to stay in the race and why she says that she will. And if she were to drop out after losing South Carolina primary on Saturday, it would look really, really bad, even worse than it would look if she had just said, yeah, I'm still in the race. Some of the things she said in this speech, you know, she's basically said she's pretty well settled the question of whether she would be Trump's running mate. She said other people are saying that I'm trying to set up a future presidential run. How does that even work? So she's saying this isn't about the VP. This isn't about 2028. She -hmm. says she doesn't feel the need to kiss the ring, that she doesn't fear Trump's retribution. She at least is projecting the idea that she is kind of in her last campaign potentially, and she just wants to see how it all shakes out. And I think there is a distinct chance that this is kind of what we thought it was from the beginning, which is there is one final candidate against Trump, and they all kind of run against each other to be that candidate. And then that one candidate hopes for 
something to come along and turn the party against Trump. Whether that thing is going to come is another matter, but I think that's been a calculation for a long time. Like a true act of God, right? Yes. (laughs) Or an act of a judge and jury somewhere, potentially. But that will come very late, even (laughs) Correct. But do you buy that, that this isn't about 2028? I do feel like I hear in her speech and in the fact that she's staying in this race so long, someone who is like, this is a platform for me to be able to make the case that I am like what the Republican Party will look like after Trump. Yeah, I I don't I don't buy that this is her last race, right? Like she's young. She's ambitious. She's clearly a very talented and charismatic politician. I would be stunned if this is the last we see of Nikki Haley on the national scene. What's interesting to me has been by becoming the last woman, as she says, standing against Trump, she has emerged as another voice of the anti-Trump resistance. And it's something where it's part deliberate, right? She's the last one against him. She has to attack him. She has to show the contrast of what a Trump presidency would look like versus a Haley presidency. But she's also sort of been unwittingly thrust into this role. And it's this fascinating dance where she's very clear that she doesn't want to be Liz Cheney. She's not a never-Trumper, right? She did serve in his administration. She did vote for him. And it will also be fascinating to see if and probably when she does not win her party's nomination. How on earth does she go back and do what I suspect she's going to do, which is tell everyone to vote for him over Joe Biden? (laughs) Yeah. So, like, how is that going to work? What is her path here going forward of being able to square these two ideas? I think she's going to do what the other Republicans who have been pretty critical uh, are doing is basically like saying that Donald Trump is dangerous and harming the party. But, you know, he's not as bad as Joe Biden. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we saw in 2016 where all of these Republicans who were running against Trump said all manner of just terrible things about him, that he was a circus sideshow and that he was a con artist and, you know, all these different things. Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham. Chris Christie, and then they turned around and endorsed him and basically said, you know, I was just kind of saying things back then. I was running against the guy. Chris Christie was actually very unvarnished about this. He was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of what you say in campaigns. I mean, the logical extension there is, well, you didn't really mean it then, apparently. (laughs) But I think we've seen over the course of Trump's presidency that people can reverse themselves rather quickly on him. I don't know that she is going to go fully on board with Trump eventually. You know, we even see Ron DeSantis right now kind of being nervous about that and saying some things that aren't terribly helpful for Trump. So maybe there are some hard feelings that linger there, but the path here to ultimately endorsing Trump would probably be intact. Yeah, you could see her just saying exactly what Aaron said, right? Like, he's better than Biden, but I don't think they'll be stumping together a ton. I would expect her to probably maybe do, especially if she's trying to keep a political future alive, a bit more down-ballot stuff. I mean, the interesting thing, although there's some precedent with this here, too, is Trump has said truly horrific things about her, her family. He attacked um, her husband, who's serving overseas right now. He called her bird brain. So it's not just her disavowing the stuff she said about him. It's also her forgiving him for the stuff he said about her and her family. Although, You have to look no further than Ted Cruz, who in 2016, Donald Trump insinuated Ted Cruz's father had perhaps assassinated JFK, attacked pretty viciously the physical appearance of Ted Cruz's wife. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, Ted Cruz managed to get to yes on Donald Trump. So 
Yeah. It's happened. And yeah. Ted Cruz held out until the Republican convention and he called did, him yeah. a sniveling coward at the convention. So sometimes it doesn't happen right away as it's not happening right away <laughs> with Ron DeSantis. But I think all these are politicians and they eventually realize where their bread is buttered. Ashley, I do want to go back to a little bit more of your reporting on this idea that Haley has now become this maybe like accidental um, leader of like the anti-Trump resistance, because I feel like that's what I have been hearing a lot in how Democrats have been responding to Haley, that, yes, there is this sense of, well, we don't want Haley to be the Republican nominee because she would probably be a tougher opponent than Trump for a lot of different reasons. But at the same time, like you can see this palpable enjoyment of this woman, and especially because she is a woman, taking Trump to task and like saying the things that they want to hear people say, but saying it out of a Republican mouth that I think is exciting to some Democrats. They love it. I mean, Joe Biden's campaign, which has an account on Truth Social, which is Trump's social media platform, they regularly on Truth Social put out clips of Nikki Haley attacking Donald Trump. I think, and in a weird way, I think the fact that she keeps on saying, I'm not anti-Trump, right? I'm not a never-Trumper. I am a solid Republican with real Republican credentials. There's this hope among Democrats, and some of it depends on what she does after if she's not the Republican nominee. But there's this idea that she can sort of provide a permission structure or an off-ramp for other Republicans to say, you know what, like, I voted for Trump twice. I liked a lot of his policies, actually, but I'm just I'm, I'm sick of the chaos, right? I don't it's time to move on. And Republicans may kind of feel that privately, especially some of these voters who will be critical in a general election, right? Like sort of independents, suburban women, swing voters. And, you know, just hearing Liz Cheney or a never Trumper go after Trump feel they feel like he's being persecuted and it's Mm. a witch hunt and it's the media and it's not fair. But hearing a Republican like Nikki Haley who says, like, I'm not a never Trumper. I voted for him. I served in his administration can sort of help them, the hope is, from Democrats say, you know what, that's how I feel too. I'm ready to try something new. Interesting. So considering the fact that Nikki Haley is unlikely to be Trump's next running mate, also Ron DeSantis, as you mentioned, there's some bad blood there, and it's a question of whether that's still a possibility. I do want to talk about the other potential running mates that Trump might be considering right now, and we wouldn't expect that announcement to come probably for another few months, but it has been interesting to see some of what Trump has been saying and the people who seem top of mind for him. Talk to me about, like, who are the names that come up for you when you're thinking, like, this is going to be Trump's vice president? Yeah, so, you know, he was asked at a Fox News town hall this week. Laura Ingram, the host, basically ran through a bunch of names. The audience has uh, been asked who they think would be a good choice, and various names came up. Um, uh, One of them was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's made a big splash. Ron DeSantis, who's making an appearance today in South Carolina, we just found out. Um, Obviously, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, and a a big uh, presence here for Tulsi Gabbard. Um, very interesting. Um, are, and Christy Nome as well, I should say. Right. Are, are, are they all on your short list? And when can you... When can we well, if, if they are on the short list, then it's not a very short list. And by the way, that doesn't <laughs> include all of the ones that I think make a lot of sense here. Look, whenever we look at vice presidential candidates, we talk about what they could bring to the ticket, how much they can kind of expand the appeal of the ticket. So in twenty. 16, Trump picked uh, Vice President Pence, who had a much more comfortable 
you know, alliance with religious conservatives who Trump really needed and didn't have as much of a comfortable alliance with because that's not really who he is. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, that the Trump presidency and how the Pence pick turned out is going to loom over this. And that is— Like the loyalty question, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, Mike Pence was at these press conferences and events at the White House saying all kinds of nice things about Donald Trump and was very— praising him and dear leader kind of stuff. And at the end of the presidency, he didn't do what Trump wanted him to on January 6th. And so I would imagine that because of that and because of how various former Trump administration officials eventually turned on Trump eventually, even more than Mike Pence, that Trump will want to go with somebody who is very loyal, somebody who is going to do what he asks. And so what we're seeing is Candidates for vice president like Elise Stefanik, like Tim Scott, saying the things that you would expect from somebody who is setting themselves up to be a much more obedient running mate than Mike Pence wound up being in his vice presidency. My favorite dark horse, I will say, is, and at this point, I think, to me, it's a question of if she would ever do it, is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Mm. Because I think he needs a vice president in the model of Pence, right? Someone who will never publicly contradict him, ever. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders is someone who managed to walk this incredibly fine line of being his press secretary, his public face, right? And going out and with a straight face defending him and delivering the administration line while largely not entirely keeping her credibility intact. So she knows how to do that. She knows how to be the voice in the face for Trump. She's clearly a talented and savvy politician in her own right, right? She's Mm. young. She was just elected governor of Arkansas. She's a mother of three. And she's charismatic and she's glamorous, but she's not going to outshine him, which is another important thing. I remember during the 2016 VP selection process, Newt Gingrich was getting looked at and Newt Gingrich kind of said like, At the end of the day, Trump's not going to choose me or Chris Christie, right? He doesn't want another pirate, right? He doesn't Mm -hmm. want another big personality. I mean, I will say it took her a while to come out and endorse him for president this time. um, And that's something he was very aware of, something he grumbled about and something he probably will not forget. Why? Why? I mean, do we have a sense of why she took her time there? I'm actually not entirely sure. It's a good report. Reporting target, frankly. I mean, I would like, like is it like post January 6th? Like, uh, I still have some. I mean, she seems like the sort of person who might be bothered by a deadly insurrection on the US Capitol, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I truly don't want to put words in her mouth. I don't actually know. It's an interesting open question, but mm-hmm. she knows Trump. She knows how much he values someone coming out and endorsing him as soon as humanly possible. And the fact that she didn't tells me it was, for whatever reason, it was a deliberate decision on her part. Hmm. Aaron, who would you put your money on as a Trump VP pick? Yeah, I think that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a really good shout and and probably something that people aren't looking at closely enough at this point because she's not she doesn't really have a, too much of a national profile. The one that I'm really keeping an eye on, you know, in addition to Tim Scott is Elise Stefanik. A lot of these picks and Sarah Huckabee Sanders is an exception here. A lot of these picks might fit with Trump very well. But, like, the electoral track record isn't there. Like, J.D. Vance is the Ohio senator who's very Trumpy, but he didn't do terribly well, even though he won in his one Senate race. 
Carrie Lake lost the Arizona gubernatorial race. Vivek Ramaswamy is not somebody who has broad appeal that you could add to the ticket. But there are these candidates who kind of align with Trump's brand and have signaled a loyalty to him that have more of kind of a political track record or can bring something to the ticket that's more kind of politically relevant. And I think Elise Stefanik is one of them. She is a member of House Republican leadership. She's, you know, been involved in driving messages. She's been kind of in a more pragmatic portion of the party early in her career. So she kind of understands that side of things. So she's the one that I see as kind of uniting this like total MAGA loyalty thing with actually having some connection to like pragmatic politics. And so I think she kind of unites those two sides of things in a way that might be appealing, not necessarily to Trump, but to people in his orbit. Interesting. Okay, let's take a pause there. After that, we will talk about President Biden, the impeachment hearings, the continuing questions around his age, and the challenges that he has been facing in this part of the campaign. We'll be right back. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. I feel like I came into this thinking this was a tough week for Biden. We have these questions around his age that have just gotten louder since this special counsel report that basically made him out to be like this doddering old man. But at the same time, we had a um, pretty critical hearing in the impeachment inquiry against him that in some ways seemed like it actually went in Biden's favor. So I'm curious what you guys think about like how this week has shaped out for President Biden and what this means about where he's at in this moment in the campaign. Yeah, I think that the impeachment thing is is kind of a, a case in point here. Having your brother James Biden testify in an impeachment inquiry is not uh, necessarily a great thing. I think next week is going to be more fraught with Hunter Biden expected to be testifying. There are things about, you know, whether or not you think there are impeachable offenses here, and Republicans have certainly struggled to make that case. The Hunter Biden side of things is not a proud part of it for President Biden, and you can bet there's going to be a lot to talk about on that. On the other side of things, we saw the indictment of a key informant in this impeachment push who was basically accused of making up the entire thing, specifically the idea that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden got $5 million in bribes. Mm -hmm. Republicans are downplaying this, but this is something that they played up extensively as being the most crucial thing in their investigation, the thing that was the smoking gun. Just last month, we had Jim Jordan talking about how this was the most corroborative evidence that they had in this process. And so I think that even as we're kind of seeing these major figures come in and have to testify in ways that are going to be pretty important, the impeachment part of it is kind of falling away and is, it isn't really working out for Republicans in, in ways that they had imagined. So 
I think the main question here is really whether this process, not not necessarily whether he's going to be impeached, but whether this process can actually produce something that's a little bit more solid than what Republicans have produced so far in this impeachment inquiry. Mm-hmm. And I also think another, um, totally unrelated to that, but another kind of unexpected thing that fell in Biden's lap that could help him electorally is the Alabama Supreme Court decision on IVF. I mean, this is just another thing where fertility and IVF treatments, they're simply not partisan. They affect Democrats, Republicans, independents equally. And it's just an issue where you are already seeing a degree of outrage and devastating stories, right, of people who have desperately wanted a kid, who have paid a ton of money, who are in the middle of a trying IVF cycle, you know, injecting themselves with hormones, supposed to have uh, an implantation scheduled, and suddenly it's all moved to a standstill. And this part is more just hypothetical on, on my end. I'm kind of eager to do some more reporting on this. But fertility treatments in IVF, again, they're sort of a luxury item. They're incredibly expensive, right? You either need a lot of disposable income or you need to work for a company that provides that type of insurance. So a lot of the people who are able, unfortunately, uh, uh, generally the only people able to pursue these sorts of treatments are, again, sort of upper middle class suburban people who who are the exact types who are already kind of getting sick and frustrated with some of the other things they're seeing in the Republican Party. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if this just pushes them further away. And we know that this is ground on which President Biden feels very solid, right? Like talking about the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade, talking about his belief in making sure that women have autonomy over their own bodies. And this feels like it's in his wheelhouse of things that he— Well, yes yes and no. It's Hmm. in the Democrats' wheelhouse, right? Democrats are very comfortable and confident talking about this, and they believe, and and data shows fairly correctly, that— Some of these abortion politics have helped them win special elections and other elections and do better in certain cycles than they were expected to do. Biden himself, one of the defining things is his Catholicism, right? And his sort of old school Catholicism. He is an 81-year-old Irish Catholic. And so he personally is a little more uncomfortable with abortion, he often doesn't say the word. I mean, he's, he's certainly gotten on the place if he talks about it, about women's freedom and, mm-hmm. and sort of rights being taken away. But ironically, of all the voices in the party, Biden is probably one of the worst to talk about it. Interesting. It almost like he has dad energy, you know, that like, <laughs> I want my daughter to be able to have her rights. And I also like don't really feel comfortable at all talking about her body or the kind of <laughs> physics of how these things work. The one thing I'd add here about the politics of this is that Ashley is right, that this is very much in the Democrats' wheelhouse. The argument that you're going to see repeatedly over the next eight, nine months is that, look, when Republicans are in power, these are the kinds of things that they're going to do. There are many anecdotes about these, that you know, young rape victims trying to get an abortion and having problems on that front. Like, you may not love Joe Biden and you may think he's too old, but like, look what can happen if you actually put these other people in charge. And, you know, one of the things about Donald Trump is regardless of what you think, he is not shy about going to the political extremes, not necessarily on abortion, but like he doesn't keep these things at arm's length like other politicians would. And that creates a permission structure for other people in his party to kind of embrace these things and say, look, maybe we can just go for this stuff that maybe the public doesn't want. And so things just kind of tend in that direction. And I think abortion has been very much a case in point on that because 
This is something a lot of the party has been pushing for for a very long time. After mid-2022, they finally had the opportunity to do these things, and it turns out a lot of them actually meant it, and they want to outlaw abortion. They want to go after IVF. They want to go after the abortion pill, and it's creating a situation where it's giving Democrats fodder because a lot of these issues are 80-20 issues for the American people. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, Biden is uncomfortable talking about these things for a, a variety of reasons, but this is stuff that is going to allow them to recenter the focus of the campaign on things that are cutting against the Republican Party's kind of plank issues. Hmm. And and the other thing that just told me that this IVF decision is going to be a problem for Republicans is what happened with Nikki Haley when she weighed in. So a little bit of context is that I have been talking to for the past couple of months, Democrats who are actually deeply worried about if Nikki Haley was the nominee because they say when it comes to abortion, they say they think her actual positions are pretty extreme and out of line with the general public. But when she talks about it, she sounds so reasonable. She sounds so moderate. She talks about it in such a sort of personal way. I mean, you may remember those debates where she sort of said, look, the reason I am pro-life is because I'm surrounded by blessings. My husband was adopted and I use fertility to have my children. Mm. And they think that she'd be a really difficult messenger to run against, right? She she talks about this in a, in a very savvy way for a Republican. But on this IBF issue, she was asked by NBC that day about the ruling. I want to ask you about some news of day, specifically something that's come up in Alabama. The Supreme Court there said that embryos created through IVF are considered children and are offered those same protections. Do you agree? I mean, I think, I mean, embryos to me are babies. So even those created through IVF. I mean, I had artificial insemination. That's how I had my son. So when you look at, you know, one thing is to have um, to save sperm or to save eggs. But when you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. She again, she made it very personal. Right. And within 24 hours, she was scrambling to clean that up. She had to come out and in another interview say, you know, just because I said I think embryos are babies, that doesn't mean I agree with this decision. Because that's what's um, so, so the complicated fact- here, right, is that you can believe that embryos are babies and your belief in that is actually going to make it more difficult for people to have access to IVF going forward because of the medical complications that that brings up. Yes, exactly. And again, this is someone who Democrats sort of look at as the gold standard of of how it will be tough to run against a Republican on these issues. And that she like still can't quite get it right. She still couldn't quite get it right because it's just not a winning issue for Republicans. Interesting. Okay, so before we wrap today, briefly, I'm just curious, going into this weekend, South Carolina, and seeing the results from that, what are the questions that you guys are going to be asking as we see how this shapes out in the next few days? I think barring a huge shock, Nikki Haley is going to lose her home state of South Carolina by a very wide margin. The polls currently have it at about 30 points. It is not good to lose your home state. Um, You know, (laughs) Elizabeth Warren lost it. Marco Rubio lost it. Actually, the last president to lose their home state and win the presidency was Richard Nixon in 1968. He lost California to a fellow Californian by the name of Ronald Reagan. So it was a little bit of an unusual circumstances. (laughs) You know, not a proud moment. I I think the big question here is how significant is the block of Republicans who are still not voting for Donald Trump now that he appears to be something amounting to the presumptive nominee? Is it 40 percent, even though it's her home state? I think that would be pretty significant. 
Yeah, I two points. One, um, to pick up on what Aaron was saying, and, and Nikki Haley has been making this point, Donald Trump is not an incumbent president, but he's kind of a quasi-incumbent president. And if Joe Biden was getting these numbers in primary states or an incumbent president of, you know, a certain percentage not choosing you of your party, it would be a huge story. So that's one interesting thing. Mm. The other interesting thing is, and, you know, David Axelrod always says, and I am inclined to agree with this, that, you know, presidential campaigns, the crucible of a national presidential campaign with all of the media attention and scrutiny that comes with it are sort of MRIs for the soul. So it will be fascinating to see how Nikki Haley takes this loss in her home state of South Carolina, how she takes this punch and keeps going. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Listen, thank you guys so much for being here. Ashley Parker is a national political correspondent for The Post. Ashley, thank you. Thank you. And Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter and author of the Campaign Moment newsletter. Aaron, really appreciate you making time for this. Thank you. And make sure everybody subscribe to the Campaign Moment. And you can find the link to subscribe to that newsletter in our show notes and at postreports.com. That is it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thank you so much for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon, and it was edited by Renita Jablonski. Our team also includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Lucy Perkins, Monica Campbell, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop Sand, Renny Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Peter Bresnan, Allison Michaels, and Alahe Azadi. And I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Does nobody really know what pumps are? They you it was like, a basketball, yes. I had it was them. mainly basketball, and you pressed it to like pump pump up the shoe, and then there were like these like reports on the local news, like consumer like what? exploding shoes. Wait, there were exploding shoes in the eighties? I mean, I don't even <laughs> believe that. But between like that and the like eighty dollar price tag, they were just like not gonna be a part of my childhood. But allegedly sometimes like they exploded. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.